Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 will be our text. We'll only go through halfway today and we'll do part 2 next week. The title of today's message is The God Who Suffers With Us and For Us. And I wish I would have had a longer title. What I would like to tack on to the end of this, He suffers with us and for us in order to fix us. That should be the caveat I want you to put down and understand. We learned the last few weeks, as John is looking into heaven before the great tribulation starts, he is seeing a scene in heaven of the heavenly throne and the angels and the 24 elders that represent the church, and he is seeing what's going on in heaven prior to this great awful day of judgment. And what it's teaching the believers uh, for the tribulation period is that God is in control of things, that He's going to right every wrong, that He's going to bring grace and promise to us and fulfill His promises made to us in the end. He's preparing our destiny. And last week we learned that He's the God who identifies with our pain because He suffered more than any of us has ever suffered when he went to the cross. He became a man and suffered just like you and I to become a sympathetic high priest. And we talked about his empathy and his emotion with us and what he feels. Now, what you're going to see now in chapter 5 is another aspect of God, but you're going to, it's going to focus in on the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, and what his suffering not only did for us, but did for the entire universe but it's the reason he suffered. It's to fix us, to fix the problems that we have. It's not enough that God just simply empathizes with us and sympathizes with us and identifies with us. That's not enough. Even though that's good, it's not enough because if he couldn't fix our problem, we'd be in a mess. But it's the fact that he does do all of that plus and I'm going to fix the problem is what seals the deal on being the God who suffers with us and for us. And here's the deal. Behind the scenes, he is working to fix our problems. We may not see it, but he is working actively to do it. But here's what happens to us a lot of times. We typically say to ourselves, well, I got myself into this mess. I'll get myself out of it. I dug this hole. I got to dig myself out of it. And so we self-reliantly say these things, we get into a mess, we get into a hole, and we can't get out of it. And I thought it was amazing that it's like when we're dealing with our children. The analogy with God the Father to us, to us as parents or grandparents, to our children. There's a lot of times our children get into messes that they simply can't get out of. Now, here's the mess that typically when my kids were little, this is the mess they got in. We'd go fishing, I'd take them fishing, and I spent more time getting the line straightened out and unraveling the line than we did fishing. I said, I don't know what we were doing here, but we didn't fish. All I did is spend the whole three hours unraveling line. So a lot of times they would end up in a mess like this with their line all crossed up and tangled up. And I said, I've had it, I've done. I'd just start cutting things and cutting the lines and tying knots. I was like, I'm done. 
And I thought, you know, in the old days, it might have been easier with just an old stick with a six-inch line and a little hook and just throw that out there and it wouldn't get tangled up to these fancy rods and reels. And, uh, but a lot of times, in, as far as the analogy is concerned, when they were little, they would come to me and say, fix that mess. And then I'd have to sit there for a couple hours undoing the whole thing. And, and again, what was the illustration? The illustration is that's how we are with God, and that's how God understands it. He says, this is what happens to you sometimes. You make a tangled mess out of your life, but he says, come to me and bring that mess to me because I'm the only one that can fix it. Don't sit there and try to unravel your own line. Don't try to fix this like a little kid does. Give it to dad. Give it to me, he says, and I'll work these things out. That's the caveat we want to know going into this. We're going to do the application of this later on. But this is what I want you to see. You have to first see the theology of this, of how does God fix us? How is he going to fix our overall problems, get us out of the hole that we dug ourselves in? How does he untangle this? Well, you'll see it today. This is what John is going to see. Because at the end of this, you're going to say, can God really pull me out of the mess I've made in my life? Yes. Yes, he can. And you have to do it his way. And if you do it his way, he promises victory. He promises, yes, you can. So let's see how he does it. Let's explore it. And let's jump into the first point that we see. The first point we see is that he is the God who fixes our problems. How? By suffering with us and for us. It is through suffering that he fixes our problem. That will be the principle we work with, okay? So let's go into chapter 5, verse 1. Let's see what John sees. Remember, he's in heaven. He got called into heaven to see this heavenly scene before the great tribulation, and this is what he saw. He says this in verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, let's identify the whole passage and parse it out a little bit. The right hand of him who sat on the throne is God the Father. The right hand symbolizes the strength, justice, and security that that right hand of the Father symbolizes. Jesus is at the, currently at the right hand of the Father on the Father's throne right now. Again, strength, justice, security. Security will be a big theme in this passage, okay? And notice it's a scroll. It's written on the inside of the scroll and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. We have a picture of it, an artist's rendition. This would be, would be a typical scroll in the days of Jesus or days of John through biblical times. A lot of things were written on parchment, and they were on scrolls. But what I want you to notice is that the scrolls are written on the outside and on the inside. There's seven seals on them, and most... Gentiles don't pick up on this because we're Gentiles. We're not Jewish. But this is a very Jewish thing that's going on here. Let me explain what this is. This is a Jewish legal document. That's what this is. Any Jewish legal document was signed and sealed, had witnesses, and it had seven seals on it, on any documentation. And let me explain what legal documentation this represents or where the etymology of it comes from. 
It is a land redemption legal document. A land redemption legal document is a legal procedure of how the Jews would go about redeeming their own land. Okay, what do you mean by this? Well, let me explain the Jewish custom or law that God instituted with Israel, and then you'll kind of understand where this is going. The land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land, God owned, obviously, because he created the earth, right? But he gave the land to Israel. And then he separated out the land and the tribes and the different families had sections that they owned. And that land was given to them and they were to have an authority over that particular part of land and it always was their possession. So even today, that's why we talk about in prophecy that the land belongs to Israel. It was given to them and it is theirs because God gave it to them. Okay. But what would happen a lot of times is if when the individual Jew got into debt or something like that happened, he could sell off his land temporarily and then get it back after seven years, or he could indenture himself as a slave, work off of the debt, and have other people rent his land. Or he could lose the land by just not taking care of it and, and, and working the area, or leave the country and leave the ground just not in use. But that individual Jew could get his land back, but if he couldn't on his own, he didn't have enough money to buy back his land, if he sold it off or rented it off and he couldn't buy it back after he lost it, or he couldn't get someone who squatted on the land off the land, then he had to turn to a kinsman redeemer a goyel. And a kinsman redeemer was a nearest male relative who had the money in order to purchase back the land for the relative and give them their land back. But the kinsman redeemer had to do it. He had to have the money. And if it was a usurper on the land that needed to be kicked off, that kinsman redeemer had to kick off the squatter on the land. Okay? And this happened a lot of times individually to families and stuff in the, the land of Israel. It was always theirs, but they had to have the money and the resources and the power to get their land back if they sold it off or, or lost it to a usurper. That is the legal proceedings that happened in Israel, and it would be done by a scroll. Now, on the scroll would be written words on the outside, and it would tell any family member that was a kinsman redeemer, how to go about getting the land back, what the cost is, and what is the procedure in getting it back. On the inside of the scroll was written the property of the family inside. So inside the scroll, so, so as someone would say, okay, you're the Goyel, you want to redeem it, they would look at the scroll, and it was still sealed, but on the outside, they could read what are the conditions for getting the property back into the family member's hands. And he, the Goyel would have to read it, and he would see that, and he would look at it and say, hmm, do I want to do this? Do I have the resources to do this? Do I have the power to do it? And sometimes they didn't, and they turned it down. Now, you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. Do you remember that? Everybody remembers that story, but that story was about the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And I think we have a picture of that. Just kind of just remember, remember Boaz was the second 
kinsman redeemer. The first kinsman redeemer did not want to redeem the land for Naomi. And so it, it kicked off to Boaz, who did have the financial means and the resources to redeem Naomi's land. And so Boaz is a picture or a typology of Christ. Naomi is a picture of Israel, and Ruth is a picture of the church. So Boaz is your Christ figure in the story. So that, that happened there on an individual level. There was a, that was a microcosm, a foreshadowing, of pointing forward to one day what Messiah will do on a cosmic level. Okay, so then let me go to a nationalistic passage, a nationalistic event. And it had to do with the exile of Israel. As you recall, Judah was kicked out of Israel in 596 B.C., out of the land. Even though the land belonged to them, God had exiled them out for their disobedience. But he told the prophet Jeremiah, I think we have just kind of an artist's rendition, and I want, you, I want to walk through this. God told Jeremiah before the exile, and they were in prison at this point in time because Babylon was coming in, taking over, and kicking Israel out. He told Jeremiah, what I want you to do is I want you to write a, a documentation and I want you to buy a piece of land. And I think we have a picture of the land actually that Jeremiah bought. It's the field of Anath. And in that area, Jeremiah bought land. Okay? And so go back to the picture of the scroll that he's writing on. So he filled out the legal documents on the scroll... And God says, put this in all and, and document everything of the land that belongs to you, the field of Anath, and then seal it up and do it with the witnesses of the elders of Israel in prison. Therefore, that one day when you come back into the land, one of your kinsmen can buy back the land and reestablish Israel back into the land. And it was all symbolic. And, and Jeremiah did this, and what he did is he, he did exactly what the Lord said. He wrote it down, he bought the field, they sealed it, and then they buried it in an earthen vessel somewhere that they only knew, and they buried it in a safe, secure place so that after 70 years they could come back to that very location and get the legal document that says that Jeremiah's family owns the land or that Israel owns the land, basically, on a nationalistic level. At the same time, copies would have been made. Copies would have been made on what the conditions are and what's also inside the, the scroll. And these copies would be distributed with other people and also buried alongside the official legal document that was sealed. And the copies were available for everyone to read. And they knew what the conditions are for the Goyel and the kinsman redeemer. And they knew what the property rights were of the family. That being stated, that is the background of the scroll. It, Jeremiah's situation pointed typologically, nationally. And then Ruth and Bo Boaz's situation pointed individualistically towards Messiah to what? to this particular scroll, and what is it? Well, let's explain this a little bit, because now we have to go cosmic to understand what Jesus did. So now what you're going to see now is what was inside the scroll. And we start with letter A. I want you to see this. The earth and its dominion 
properly belong to Adam and his progeny or descendants. In this, we see the divine purpose for man decreed. And you can see this in, in, in Hebrews in the next passage. Hebrews says this, you have made him, man, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So I think, let me show you a picture of the globe. What Hebrews is saying, what Adam and Eve were given is dominion over this planet, planet earth. Okay? So now I've taken you from the land of Israel or individual plots of families of Jews to the real antitype. The antitype is the globe. Mankind, Adam, through Adam, was given dominion over this planet. That is the possession of, of man. Even though God gave it to him and God's the creator, it is man's possession. But as you know, Adam, our first king, failed. And that leads me to letter B. So follow me with this so you can, you can understand the scroll. Man was then usurped by Satan through the temptation of Adam and took control after the fall of Adam. The earth and the human race was not meant to be ruled by angels, i.e. by Satan and fallen angels under his control. In this, we see the divine purpose delayed. Now, what we mean by this is Adam, because he fell, was usurped. All of humankind was usurped by Satan. He's the squatter on this planet. He's the one who has taken control of the governments and the, the world system. And again, we see this because of Scripture telling us this, that he is the God of this world. Let's see, and God is little g, I mean ruler, I should say. We got that passage? Hebrews 2 says this, But now we do not yet see all things put under him. And this is talking about Jesus, because we don't see things under, under Jesus' rule. We see things under satanic rule. Because it's controlled by the God of this age. You'll see phrases like that referring to Satan. And there's another phrase that Jesus used. And he said, the ruler of this world, he called Satan. And then, as you know, in the temptation of Messiah, Satan tempted Jesus that he would give them the, the kingdoms of this world if he would worship him. And you see this passage in Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And so you see that the scripture says that once Adam was usurped, Satan took control of this world. And he has been in control and is still in control. This idea of offering the kingdoms, it was his to offer. And one day he's going to offer the Antichrist the kingdoms, and the Antichrist will take it. But that's what happened. We're, we have a usurper on our planet. We have his dominions running our planet, and hence we have a problem. And so all of that is what we lost. We lost our dominion over this planet. Now we go back to, uh, to what was written on the outside of the scroll. What are the... What, what is necessary to get the planet back? What's necessary to redeem all of this? Well, that's letter C. Someone must be found within humanity, a kinsman redeemer who is qualified to reclaim the lost inheritance, someone who was, uh, was true humanity yet free to redeem, not a sinful man nor an angel. 
In this, we see the divine purpose for man accomplished by a kinsman redeemer so that paradise lost can be regained. So one of the points that you'll understand, especially in this Christmas season of the incarnation of of the second person of the Trinity becoming a man is not just simply for, for him to die for us, but to redeem all the cosmos because in order to be a kinsman redeemer, he has to be a close relative, right, in Jewish law. Jesus is called our brother because of he shares in humanity in Hebrews chapter 2. Not ontologically a brother, but he is a human being and God at the same time. He's the God-man. Hence, because of, of his humanity, he then becomes the goyel for us. And hence, he's what's called the second Adam. He is the rightful king, and he has the ability to take it all back. Okay, what are the conditions necessary then to take it back? What's written on the outside of the scroll? On the inside, we lost planet Earth. We lost our dominion. What's on the outside? The conditions spelled out in order for you to redeem these creatures called humans... You must die for them. You must shed your blood on a cross, and you must pay the penalty they owe me for a lifetime that they can never repay. And it's not only that, is that your death on the cross will, will put in effect the judgment that must come on humanity. It's just not enough to redeem them. Humanity who refuses to be redeemed in the offer of salvation, must be punished and must be driven out of this planet. Not only will sinful humanity must be driven out, who refuse to be redeemed by the blood of the Messiah, but Satan and his dominions must be kicked off the planet. The usurper, the squatter, must be removed in order to get the planet back to what it was, to restore paradise lost. Hence, the cross is then connected to the tribulation. It's like the judge rendered a sentence guilty. This will be the penalty. Well, the penalty phase then will be enacted in the future with the tribulation. So the judge has already declared Messiah's sacrifice is good enough to redeem all of humanity and to, to, to start the process of judgment. There is the Goyel that had the ability to do this. Hence, it will put into effect the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven thunder judgments, the seven bowl judgments, and including the second coming to purge planet Earth of evil and sin. That's what's on the scroll. And as the scroll is read, Messiah sees what's on the scroll. He knows what's inside of it. The Father has the official document. And it's in his right hand right now as we speak, literally. And Messiah will take this. This is not a metaphor. Messiah will take that scroll because he has the right to do this. But remember I told you, there are copies always made. Do you know what the copy is? Do you know what's on the scroll? 
It's the book of Revelation. The conditions necessary to get planet Earth back under the dominion of man are spelled out in Revelation 6 through 19. You and I have a copy of the real legal document that is in heaven that Messiah will one day take from the Father and then start breaking it to unleash the judgments because he has the right as the goyel and the power to do so. So it's not a mystery. It's written right here. I find it amazing that this is the most unread book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. People say, I didn't understand it. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, when you understand from a Jewish perspective, it makes perfect sense. It is the kinsman redeemer's legal document to planet Earth. And he has every right to take it. Let's continue on. Verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel. This angel is perhaps Gabriel. The idea is probably it is Gabriel because Gabriel is the pronouncing angel. Michael is the fighting angel. He's the strongest of the angels, second to Satan. But Gabriel is the announcer. He is the one who proclaims things. And it's probably Gabriel himself because it goes in tandem with Daniel chapter 12. This strong angel is going to proclaim something that has been shut up for a long time. Let me show you Daniel chapter 12 so you can understand what, is, what has been sealed, what has not been seen for a long time. He says this in Daniel chapter 12, But you, Daniel, this is Gabriel talking to Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. What do you mean by that? Well, Daniel was seeing what you and I see in the book of Revelation. He was seeing all that John has told us, but he was told to seal it up. Don't tell it right now. He goes, until the time of the end. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a times, times, and a half time. That's three and a half years, by the way. Same chronology of John, by the way, in the book of Revelation. And when the power of the holy people, that's Israel, has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Did you notice that phrase? The reason Israel is going to go through the tribulation is to break their power, break their pride to accept Messiah. And this will happen at the end. So he's, he's saying all of this. When we know more complete story now with the book of Revelation. He goes, verse 8, Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. And folks... They're unsealed now. They're unsealed. John unsealed them. Messiah unsealed them in 95 AD. Hence, we're that close to the times of the end. And we're seeing, it's referencing to Israel. They're back in the land last three and a half years. Israel became a nation in 1948. Folks, we're living in the last days. That's a major prophetic sign of Israel. Don't ever discount that, that the fact that they're back in the land because they have to be in the land for God to start the process with them again. And there's a lot of other converging factors, but that's just one that we're picking up. Now, let's go back to what Gabriel is saying. This strong angel is saying something. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is the goyel for humanity, basically, is what he's saying. Who's the kinsman redeemer? 
And no one in heaven, the saints in heaven, believers, or on the earth, saints that are alive, or under the earth, those who are dead and unregenerate in hell, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So the idea is that they did a search all throughout humanity of every human being that's ever been born, and no human has the ability to fix this problem. Nobody. So what is John's reaction? So I wept much, or mourned, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. No one in all of humanity since Adam has been able to be able to open this scroll as the kinsman redeemer, because the qualifications are too high. Think about the kind of qualifications needed to redeem humanity. You have to be sinless. You have to be a perfect man. You have to have the power to expel Satan and the demonic hordes. You have to be able to reverse the curse. You have to be able to do a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that has eternal value. Not just a human sacrifice, but that sacrifice must be human blood, but have eternal value. You cannot find a human being that's ever been born that can do that. Now, you and I know Jesus, being the God-man, is the only one that has been able to do that. But again, John is saying, aside from him, no one has been able to do it. Yet, it's amazing that our world thinks they can. It's amazing our politicians think they can fix our world. Our world leaders think they can fix our world. There's no amount of politics that is going to fix anything. No amount of education. People think, well, if people are more educated, then they'll get better. No. People think, well, if we have more technology, we'll get better. No. That just accelerates evil, doesn't it? When we have economics, if we have good economics, then that'll solve man's problem. We'll create this utopia that everyone has in their mind. No, because the issue is a spiritual, moral issue. It is not an economic issue. It's not an education issue. It is a moral issue. And because it's a moral issue, it deals with the heart. It deals with the soul. And only God can deal in that arena. Man can't. Let me give you a point of application before we move on. You and I have to come to this realization, if you haven't already, you and I can't fix our own problems. We can't. Because our problems are spiritual in nature. They deal with a heart. They deal with a sin nature. And the struggle with that. You're sitting here today and you're having marriage problems. Don't think you're going to fix it on your own. The world tries that all the time and it doesn't work. If you're sitting here with relationship problems, attitude problems, addictions, anger problems, guilty conscience, discontent with life, or you have a broken heart over some type of loss, that will not be solved, humanistically speaking. Only God can fix that. And the quicker we learn that, the more freedom we'll have. But let me point out some consequences if you don't bring your tangled mess to God. Because a lot of people don't. What starts happening in your life when you don't allow God to fix your problems like you see our world doing, you will have to start self-medicating. 
you will have to start self-medicating because the pain of a tangled mess in your life will be so excruciating, you're going to have to find some type of outlet. And you will find something that's not healthy for you. And you will medicate with whatever that outlet is, be it drugs, be it alcohol, be it sex, be it pornography. You will self-medicate, guaranteed, if you don't take your problems to God. Because you're going to deal with the pain. This is what this life causes. You will find worldly coping mechanisms to deal with loss in your life, to deal with sin, to deal with guilt, to deal with regret. That's what happens to people that don't take their problems to Jesus. These coping mechanisms could be anything. It's not just addictions. It could be food or not eating. It could be all kinds of weird things like that, that they're using that. Or maybe it's isolation, withdrawing, becoming alone, pulling away. Hey, man, we haven't seen you for like six months. Where have you been? Oh, I've just been around doing this and that. No, you've been isolating. That's what you've been doing. Or putting up a false front. A lot of people put a false front because they're so hurt inside, so full of pain, they got to give a false front, a false image. They put on their Sunday smile on Sunday, but man, Monday through Saturday, they are a train wreck. They are an absolute train wreck. They can't hold it together. You will have to manipulate other people. You will have to start controlling other people. You have to be angry all the time. You have to be critical and judgmental all the time. And you'll slip out of reality. And that's the final straw. You won't be in reality anymore. See, the further you run away from God fixing your problems, you get away from the truth. See, the truth sets you free, yeah? But the further you get away from the truth, the more in unreality you become. And you, your heart, your mind starts to become darkened, and you can't see straight. Now, what do I mean by this? Can this happen to believers? Absolutely. Second Peter talks about this all the time, that you can spiritually blind yourself. Look at our world. These people live in the, the land of, of fantasy. They're not in reality. It's craziness out there. They're not in reality. And what do we say about people who are not in reality? They're crazy. Yeah, that's true. That's by definition. You're not in reality. You're crazy. Sin makes you crazy. And you'll do stupid things that you wouldn't imagine you're doing. But it's because you're not taking those problems to God. That's what humans have done for the last 6,000 years. They have run every other direction other than to God to fix it. And our society is so broke, it's going to have to take God to give the whole world the tribulation to straighten all this out. It's gone that far. It's not coming back is the idea. Let's go back to the text. It'll get deeper. Verse 5. But one of the elders, this, remember the 24 elders represents the church. The church has already been raptured. This is talking about a future time, right? So the elders represent the church. Said to me, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the king of Israel, Messiah, the root of David, remember he's from David's line, has prevailed. He has been victorious. He accomplished the ability to fix man's problems. I want you to think about this idea of prevailed. He was victorious. What did he prevail over? Folks, I got to take you back to Genesis to understand what he prevailed over. It is a whole Old Testament history is what Jesus prevailed over and into the New Testament. What do you mean? In Genesis, 
And by Genesis 6, Satan is already trying to destroy humanity by messing with the genetics of humanity, by interbreeding with humans. And you have the Nephilim phenomenon going in Genesis 6, creating monstrosities. And the problem is, the genetic lines were being messed up. They weren't fully human. And so what was Satan trying to do? He was trying to pollute the genetic line of the Messiah. Because he was told, it's by the seed of the woman who will destroy you one day. He will. And so ever since he was told that the seed of the woman is going to come and destroy him, he's been trying to eradicate that line. So he does it right off the bat in Genesis 6, corrupting the genetic lines. And then what starts happening is God starts narrowing down where the line's coming. It's going to come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then it's going to come from the 12 tribes of Israel. Then, it's going to, then he's going to come from Judah. And then he's going to come from the line of David. And every time God starts whittling down finer and finer and finer where Messiah is going to come from, guess what starts happening to that line? That family, that tribe will get attacked, and then David's line will get attacked, where you virtually only have a few people left that are keeping the line alive. And then what happened when Messiah was born? He's attacked as a baby. They try to kill him, right, through Herod. And Herod was satanically inspired to kill baby Jesus, right? And then they had to flee into Egypt. And then all through Messiah's ministry, he nearly gets killed. Now, he'll slip away and slip away, because it wasn't his ordained time to die, and they'll try to kill him. And then he gets arrested and goes through the brutality of the cross. But then what happens when he's on the cross? Satan inspires the people at the foot of the cross to say, come down. See, they wanted Jesus to die at the wrong time in the wrong way, but then when he is dying the right way at the right time, Satan tries to tempt him to come off the cross because he doesn't want redemption to happen. And then even that afterwards, after resurrection, he starts a lie with the, the religious leaders that, well, the, the, the body was stolen. And then the church is getting ready to get put down by Roman persecution. And for the next 300 years, the church will be attacked relentlessly under Rome, trying to wipe it out, and Satan couldn't. So when it says the line of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, it's talking about all of what God had to do to ensure that Messiah would be born at the right time throughout the attacks of Satan. What's the point? Victory came through suffering. He is the God who suffers with us and for us because it gives us victory. Victory through suffering. The redemption price of man is you will have to die for them in order to redeem them. Hold on to that principle. I'm going to come back to that, okay? Let's continue on. He says, to open the scroll. Let me, let me go back to the scroll. To open the scroll and to loose its seals. Let me unpack that real quick. The idea of opening the scroll is that Messiah has now the authority, because of his death, the right to reveal these prophecies now that we have in the book of Revelation. Okay? And then the loosening of the seals means that Messiah has the authority to unleash the judgments on sinful humanity, Satan, the Antichrist, and all the demonic realm. So because of what Messiah did, accomplished on the cross, 
He can do this now. So I want you to broaden your understanding of what happened at the cross. A lot of people think, well, the cross, he just redeemed man. It was more than that. What he did on the cross gave him as the goyel, the legal right to get the planet back to us, to us reestablish our dominion, to reverse the curse of the planet. It's not just simply to redeem man, but it's also to judge Satan, to kick him out, to re- remove him from this planet. Satan will be bound, bound for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ, and so will his demons. They will not be able to tempt humanity any longer. And then once he's done with that, he throws them into the lake of fire. All that to say is Messiah, the God-man, suffered to fix our problem. And so now that brings to the application. The application, and I want you to understand, this, we're going to spend just the remaining time on this, is how do we turn things over to God to fix the mess we have made? How do we do that? It seems like, would well, I just throw my stuff to him and say, okay, you deal with it? It's not like that. No, no. Let me tell you what it's first not. It's not let go and let God. You might have heard that phrase from a lot of Christians, but that is unbiblical. Second Peter and other passages talk about striving to be diligent about growing in the faith. It doesn't ever mean that you sit back on the spiritual couch and say, I've given it over to God. He's going to fix it. No, it doesn't work like that. That's unbiblical. Two, it's not done through legalism. Legalism will not help you. When I talk about legalism, we're talking about man-made rules. Colossians 2 talks about that. They have no advantage. They might look good, but they have no advantage to help you. And three, it's not self-effort on the wrong path. A lot of people say, well, I'll dig myself out of this hole. I'll, I'll give it my old college try. I just need to try a lot harder. You're going to try a lot harder, and you're going to keep failing at it because that's not how it works. That's self-effort directed to the wrong area. Okay, what is it then? Let me give you some generalities. And this is a compilation of all kinds of principles from the Bible. How do I take my stuff to Jesus to fix? Because if you're telling me that he's the only one that can fix my problems, then how do I do it? What's the, what's the procedure? What's the proper idea? Well, here's some, I, some generalities we need to get down that you can get the help needed if you'll do these things. The first thing is you have to let him do it. I know that seems simple, but a lot of Christians refuse to bring their stuff to Jesus. They hide it from Jesus. They, they say, Jesus, don't go in this closet. I don't want you there. Go in the living room, but don't go in this closet because I got a skeleton hanging. And I don't want you to see that skeleton. You think he can't see that skeleton? He can. So first of all, you have to let him say, okay, I'll let you in. The second thing is, if we want him to fix it, we have to choose his path. His path. Not our path. Not the way we think we should handle our own problems. Not the way I think I should fix my problems. We have to go on His path, and I'm going to tell you what that path is. It's a path of suffering. It's a path called pain. Remember? Suffering brings victory. The reason a lot of people don't take the path of Messiah and go his way is because he starts giving you pain. 
Because the only way to fix it is you must feel the pain in order to fix this. Because there's no way of going through this without pain. No way. You're going to feel pain. That's why people avoid it. We have to comply with the process. The process is hard. It takes diligence. It takes discipline. It takes learning. It takes growing. It takes taking baby steps. It's not an overnight magic pill. And a lot of people don't like that. And because it's a process, they sometimes give up. Then the next thing you have to be is you have to be completely honest with him and with others. You have to be completely honest with him and others. What that means is this. A lot of believers are not honest with Jesus. They're not honest with the Father. They're playing games. They like live a split life. They have their Sunday life, and then they have their weekly life. And those two lives are different. When you look at that, there's difference. Like, how, how could there be any difference in that? What you do on Sunday versus what you do during the week, because what's happening is they, have, they lack integrity. They're not honest with God. But let's go to this other one. They have to trust him and the process. They have to comply with the process, but then they have to trust the process because you know what? The, tr- the process will be hard, very hard. They're going to have to take a good look at themselves and be honest about themselves and quite, quit glamorizing themselves and, and having pride. They have to be humble and realize this is what you're doing. This is what's going on. This is the real you. And that's hard. That's really hard because no one really likes to do that. It's very painful. Then the next one is this. We have to obey him and his process. So you have to do what he tells you to do on the path and do it exactly because if you obey 99% but leave 1% out, you won't have victory. Because 99% obedience is disobedience to him. And there's plenty of characters in the Bible who did partial obedience and didn't work out. Let's go to the next one. We have to access grace and mercy and use the tools he has made available to us. This is available to us. We can get it anytime we want. He says, come to the throne boldly for it, but you're going to have to use the tools available. You cannot use the tools you're using anymore to cope with life. You cannot use your self-medicating practices any longer. You will have to cut those off. Next one. We're going to have to ask for wisdom for our problem. James talks about this. We're going to have to ask him to reveal things in our lives. We're going to ask him, help me to understand myself, understand what's going on inside of me. He will, by the way, answer that. And then you're going to have to get help from third parties. What do you mean? You will eventually have to reach out beyond yourself. The mentality that you're going to sit back on your own and navigate through your own stuff is a myth. You're too close to yourself. You can't see it. A third party can see it. And I guarantee you, your spouse can see it. Your friends around you can see it. Everyone can see it except you because you're too close to yourself. If you refuse to go to a third party, you're not going to navigate through it. Why do you think he puts the body of Christ in our lives? Just so we can just see Joe or Tom or or Susie and say hello? No. The body of Christ is there to help you Get out of the bondage that you might be in. 
And you're going to have to need two types of people, these third parties. You're going to have to have a support. And supports, they're there to pray for you, and that's what they can do. And then you're going to have to have navigators. And navigators know where the rocks are. And navigators know how to go through the waters. Because they've been there, done that, and they can help you. But if you don't have a third party, you're going to be lost. You're simply going to be stuck there in your problem. And God's going to say, I've given you the tools. You need to use them. I want you out of it too. But if you refuse to admit that, then we've got a problem here. And then we've got the next one. We connect to the right people and disconnect from the wrong people. What do you mean? Well, suffice it to say, a lot of people don't hang out with the right people. They're not in the right environment anymore. They're not in the right people that can actually help and build them up. They're actually in a negative environment. And if they're not in a good environment, what typically they do is they're by themselves. They isolate. So they're either isolated for, and no one's around them or in the, they're in the wrong crowd. And part of the process of being a Christian is knowing who to bond to and who to separate from. It is necessary that you might have to separate from people because bad company corrupts good character. And that's part of it. Get away from unhealthy people. They're not going to help you. Get around healthy people. Now, that's generalities. But let's start meddling. Okay? Because Jesus wants you free. And I'm going to tell you this. He does, and you can be set free, but we've got to get into the nooks and crannies of this. The specifics about this are pretty simple, but you'll, you'll understand. Number one, we must understand the cycle we are experiencing. If you're dealing with the same sin that keeps just beating the fire out of you and you can't have victory, what's happening is you're cycling. You have your good days and you go through this and then you have your bad days and you're cycling and you're cycling. You never get out of the cycle. So you have to understand I'm in the cycle. So I'm good for a season, but then, you know, boom, at the end of the season, I'm in a bad season. That's called cycling. Number two, you must admit that you are, and we are powerless to fix ourselves. We have to. And three, we must break denial structures. What do you mean? Well, it means we have to stop minimizing what we're doing. It's not so bad. We have to stop blaming others and God. We have to stop rationalizing it. We have to start pretending it's not there. We have to stop lying. All those things have got to quit. Homologeo is the Greek word, which means say the same thing God says about things. Four, we must stop using worldly coping mechanisms. What do you mean? Well, I mean, Jesus said, if a right eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Stop using the coping mechanisms. Five, we must understand that we feel pain in order to learn from it. Pain is good. Hurt is good. You have to embrace that and take up that cross to deal with it. Seven, we will have to understand the growth and healing are processes that occur over time. It's not overnight. And number eight is we must submit to the accountability of other believers. Now, that is a nutshell of general to specific and the path that Jesus has laid out for us through the New Testament of how to get problems out of our lives, how to untangle the mess. And you have to comply with it in order to do it, but you can. Give me an illustration, and we'll end on this. His name is Bill Dallas. You may never have heard of him, but he actually founded a Christian broadcasting network. 
think it's called CCN or something like that, and they do a lot of YouTube stuff. Bill Dallas grew up in a good home. He was valedictorian of his class, real smart guy, sharp guy, never got in really trouble or anything like that. Then went to college, studied finances at Vanderbilt, got a degree in finances at Vanderbilt, then off to the financial world to make a lot of money, and he did very well. But he wasn't a believer, and so there was no boundaries holding him back from anything. So he saw a lot of potential of making money but doing it illegally, and he went for it. And he went for it because he thought to himself, man, no one's going to find out. This stuff is so under the radar. These people are too dumb to figure this out. The government's too dumb to figure it out. I'll never get caught. And he got himself involved in some major, major financial problems by doing a lot of illegal activity. Well, it finally caught up to him, and they busted him. But Bill, being a guy who minimized what he does, said, well, it won't be that bad. You know, it's kind of a, it's a white-collar crime, and they'll probably put me in the same prison they put Martha Stewart in when she went to prison, you know, real lush and luxurious for white-collar crime type of stuff, and it won't be so bad. I'll serve my time and come back and do the same thing over again, no problem. But it didn't happen. The judge sentenced him to San Quentin. And he was next to rapists and murderers. Right in his cell. Right along with them. And here's this white-collared financial guy going into a prison with rapists and murderers. And you can imagine the kind of time they had with him. He wasn't a believer. And even in that prison, he said to himself, well, okay, I made a mess of things. I understand. It's my fault. Uh, I dug this hole. I'll get out of it. And that was his mentality. It's like, what are you, crazy? You're in prison now. He still had this mentality. And things started happening to him in prison. Guys were beating him up. Things going on in prisons that you guys know, especially you guys that work in prisons, what kind of stuff goes on. And he got broken bad. So much so, he became suicidal. He was going to kill himself. And then two inmates came in San Quentin up to him. And he was just really bad. He's ready to commit suicide. And these two inmates come up to him, and they're Christian inmates. And he said, hey, man, we see that you're down and this and that. And, and, he, and he's like, man, I made a mess of my life. I don't know how I'm going to climb out of this. I, I, the only way I see out of this is killing myself. Just to end this all, I can't see a way out. I'm just going to hang myself. And they say, you don't need to do that. Jesus can set you free. And then these two inmates started witnessing to him and started discipling him. He got saved out of it, and they discipled him, and he grew and grew. And he actually started working for a TV program right there in the prison. He never studied how to work with TV, but he learned. And then he got out. And he got out and became a founder of a Christian broadcasting network. How does that happen? How did that happen? He goes from San Quentin to now Christian broadcasting, completely away from that whole life. One thing, it's Jesus. Jesus got him out of the hole. And whatever hole you're in right now that you and I have dug... Jesus can get you out of that hole. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. 
Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.